0: She came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Jesus' words to this unnamed Canaanite woman in today's gospel reading can be difficult to hear and even more difficult to understand. She comes to him, seeking healing for her daughter. She kneels before him in a posture of humility, At first, he refuses to answer her, and when she persists in asking, his response seems to be somewhere between indifferent and insulting. Matthew's narration gives no hint of sympathy or compassion. Jesus just says it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, as if this weren't a matter of life and death, as if she and her daughter weren't children of God at all, but dogs. It's a baffling story. It's one that's generated plenty of different interpretations. Some, for example, see the woman as the hero of the story and Jesus' actions as proof that God can change in response to our prayers and our actions. That here, unlike most of the Gospels, it's the Canaanite woman who converts Jesus and not the other way around. In this telling of the story, Jesus' words aren't just cool or indifferent. They're angry, maybe, insulting somewhere close to an ethnic slur and maybe a little sexist but the canaanite woman's persistence in confronting him opens his eyes to see her as she really is and he leaves the story a changed man so goes one interpretation Another school of thought starts from completely the other end. Jesus can't, by definition, they say, be any of these things. Jesus can't be bigoted or sexist. Jesus wouldn't be cold or lack compassion. Jesus doesn't learn or change or grow. He's testing her, clearly. And when he discovers her great faith, he grants her her reward. Let it be done for you as you wish, he says, and her daughter is healed instantly. She's passed the test, and the demon can get lost. Still, others lean on the old Christian method of making Jesus look good through vicious anti-Semitism. You can't imagine how many commentaries on this text make off-handed remarks like "Jews frequently insulted Gentiles by calling them dogs," citing no examples. Or, and I quote, "Jesus reacts to the woman's request as they would expect from a rabbi in those days." Would they? Given the thousands of years of Christian bigotry and violence against our Jewish neighbors, I'd think people would want to be a bit more careful before writing a sentence like that in 2023. But alas, it's very tempting for Christians to try to make Jesus look good by saying everyone around him or his culture were bad. And yet, there's a problem. This just doesn't work. There's a reason those two commentaries don't cite any evidence or examples for their points, because actually the story is the other way around. The story of the people of Israel isn't a story of exclusion or ethnic supremacism against the background of which Jesus looks good. It's a story in which God chooses one people, not to the exclusion of all others, but to be the instrument through which God will call all the others. We need to understand what Jesus says and does in this story as a part of that much larger story because it's that much larger story that ultimately leads to us being here in this church now. The story of the Bible, after all, is a story of false starts in God's relationship with human beings. God starts out by creating humankind in a garden, by giving Adam and Eve just one simple rule. What could go wrong? Everything quickly. But humankind continues to grow and multiply outside the garden, and things go even worse until it's so bad that God decides to wipe everything out and start again afresh. And he chooses one family, the family of Noah, through whom to rebuild. And again, it doesn't quite work out. After the flood, human beings return to their usual ways, trying to build up a tower to heaven so that they can become like gods. And so God scatters them and confuses their speech He casts down the Tower of Babel, which is where we get our words for, you know, babbling. And he separates the people into different nations and languages. And later, God chooses one family again from one nation, one people, the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he promises them that through them and their offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It didn't work to start with one couple, Adam and Eve. It didn't work to start with one family of Noah. So he goes smaller. Out of all the nations of the world, he chooses one family and one people to work through. And so the story follows the descendants of Jacob, the people of Israel, as they go into slavery in Egypt and come back out of it, as they enter the promised land and struggle with the people who live in it, as their kingdoms are destroyed and their homes are taken away and they're sent into exile, and then they return and the prophets promise again and again that even though this chosen people of God is small and weak and imperfect and at the mercy of others, nevertheless, they're the ones through whom God plans to redeem the world. And so the prophet Isaiah, in our first reading, rejoices in the prospect of a return from exile and gets this message from God. Thus says the Lord, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them, the foreigners, the Gentiles, all the nations of the world, almost all of us, will be joined with God's people of Israel, with the Jewish people. And my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples, God says through Isaiah. Jesus sees his own life as a part of this process, maybe the central part. He sees the story coming to its climax in him. It's in and through him that this good news will finally reach all the nations. And the message that he teaches prepares the way for that. That's what's going on in the first half of this gospel reading. Jesus has a disagreement with some of his contemporaries about food laws and hand washing and ritual purity. These are the things that mark and distinguish his own people from the people around them. Some of the people of his day thought that the best way to move forward was to elevate those laws, to emphasize their distinctiveness, to follow them more faithfully. But Jesus makes a counter-argument. What defiles you in God's sight, he says, is not your dirty hands, but your dirty hearts. Ritual practices are matters of belonging, of distinction, things that show I am from X and not Y. But Jesus goes more universal. When it comes to evil intentions, he says, to murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander, these things cross every line of nation or race or class. And if these are the true markers of purity in God's eyes, then there can be Gentiles who are as pure in heart as any Jew, and vice versa. People who are not among God's chosen people, who don't adopt their religious practices, are still being gathered into that community of Isaiah's vision, and of Jesus' teaching. Later, of course, the Apostle Paul asks whether this inclusion of the Gentiles means, in turn, the exclusion of the Jews. I ask then, he writes to the Romans in our second reading today, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. God doesn't reject the people who God foreknew, as Abraham says, as uh, Paul says, really. Not at all. God's grace hasn't been moved from one set of people to land on another. It's expanded to encompass all the nations of the worlds. So where does that leave us as we grapple with this strange story of the children and the dogs? Well, first, I have to hear it, remembering that Jesus knew this story of God's universal and expanding love, of the wideness of God's mercy, as our hymn said. If you believe that Jesus was the Son of God, then Jesus knew the plan and his own part in it. But even just on a human level, it should be clear that Jesus was a teacher who was well read in the scriptures and accustomed to interpreting them. He knew the promise that God's kingdom would expand to include all peoples of the world. He knew that God was inviting this Canaanite woman into that kingdom. And in fact, Jesus had just caused a stir in the next town over by teaching that maybe some of the things that separated him from her weren't so important after all. So it can be appealing, in a way, maybe, to see this story as a story about the Canaanite woman's agency and strength in persuading Jesus to treat her with respect and dignity. But it comes as a relief, at least to me, to think about the fact that Jesus doesn't need to be persuaded that she's worthy of God's love, or that you're worthy of God's love, or that I'm worthy of God's love. That in fact, we don't need to persuade God of anything. That was the plan all along. I can't explain Jesus' tone when he says these words. Whether it's a missing narration that Matthew could have offered, a smile on his face, or a warmth in his voice, I don't know. That part is maybe just left for us to ponder. But I do know that human beings do sometimes treat one another as if they were less than human, as if they were the dogs and not the children. That we constantly divide between us and them, insiders and outsiders, the respected and the scorned. And I know that it turns out that Jesus' answer when we make these kind of distinctions is that yes, It is right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs, because as rude as the question may sound, that's exactly what he ends up doing. And the woman's daughter, not an Israelite, is instantly healed. It's what's in the heart that makes the difference to him. It doesn't matter whether someone else would call her a dog and not a child of God, It doesn't matter if you have been treated like a dog and not a child of God. Jesus condemns false witness and slander. And Isaiah reminds us that God promises to gather the outcasts. So maybe that's all I'm left with this morning. I don't know how to deal with Jesus' tone in his treatment of this woman. But I do know that we don't need to persuade God that we're worthy or prove that we deserve God's love. We don't need to be born in the right place or be part of the right culture. The only test we need to pass is the test of faith. The only thing we need to do is trust that God is gathering us in in that way, whoever we are and wherever we've been, that Jesus is leading us to God's holy mountain together, reuniting humankind once again. For my house, God says, shall be called the house of prayer, for all peoples. Amen.